Acts chapter 9 in the scripture. We've had a wonderful trip the last couple of days and thank the Lord for giving us safety. We came, we were just north of Austin yesterday and uh, we had a flat tire. And so thankfully a lady was driving by and she waved at us and pointed to the back. And uh, when people are driving by and giving frantic gestures and pointing at your trailer, that is a proper time to pull over and check and make sure everything's okay. And uh, so we did, and thankfully there were those there able to help us, and we're able to get it squared away back on the road. And so we're just so thankful for the many miles he's allowed us to travel and be able to preach and serve Jesus Christ. I want to ask a question tonight, but before I ask the question, let's pause and pray. Father, speak to our hearts, I pray, through your word. What a mighty power there is in this precious book that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, not to take it for granted. And Lord, help us not to take this truth that you're about to show to us for granted. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd minister to us in a very real and powerful way. And we'll thank you for what you do and what you accomplish tonight. Because we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There was a missionary couple named David and Zvia Flood that went several years ago with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericsons, and the four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt that the Lord wanted them to go from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Ndolera, they were rebuffed by the chief, who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for spiritual breakthrough, but nothing came. The only contact that they had with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs. And twice a week, Zvia Flood, a tiny woman of only four feet, eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African boy or contact she could have, she would try to lead him to Jesus, and in fact, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little missionary band after another. In time, the Eriksons, the other family, decided that they had enough suffering, and they left to return to the central mission station. David and Zvia Flood remained near Ndolera, to go on alone. Then of all things, Via Flood found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened just enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born, whom they named Aina. The delivery, however, was exhausting and Via Flood was already weak because of the bouts of several bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina and she lasted only another 17 days. When she died, inside David Flood, her husband, something snapped. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. I want to ask a question tonight, and we're going to go to the book of Acts chapter 9 to find the answer and a couple of their chapters. And the question is this, and it pertains very specifically to you. What makes an Apostle Paul? What makes an Apostle Paul? I think it would be apropos. I think it would be helpful. I think it would be relevant and very practical tonight to ask that question and answer it. Now, I'm asking the question with some certain assumptions already made. For instance, I'm asking the question, understanding that without his salvation, we would never have heard of the Apostle Paul. Had there been no, no a Damascus Road experience, which we'll read in just a moment, uh, if there had never been uh, Paul turning to Jesus Christ, who at the time was Saul, if he had never turned to Jesus Christ, he would, we would never have heard of the Apostle Paul, at least not from a biblical perspective. If there had not been the call of God upon his life, 
This is the second assumption I'm going to go with. And I'm going to just assume that we all understand that if he had not been called by God, then we would never have heard of the Apostle Paul. He said he was called to be an apostle and a preacher and a teacher amongst the Gentiles, that, that he was called not of the will of the flesh, nor of men, nor of blood, but of God. And so we know this. So we're going to assume that setting his, his uh, salvation aside and his call aside, they're givens we would never have heard of the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to set something else aside, and that is his suffering. Doubtless, it is absolutely a fact, had there not been his suffering, we would not likely have heard of the Apostle Paul. The Bible says he was shipwrecked, he was beaten uh, five times, he was left for dead, he was stoned twice. Had it not been for his suffering, then we would never have heard of Saul. Because many times, suffering makes a man. And, and God doesn't use a man until he, he breaks him. A.W. Tozer said, God never uses a man greatly until he breaks him and wounds him deeply. And so we're going to set aside his salvation. We're going to set aside his call. We're going to set aside his, we're going to set aside his suffering. Now, let's ask the question. What makes an Apostle Paul? Is there something that we can do as a body that will add to, that will invest in, that will enhance and encourage someone coming up amongst our ranks, maybe a new believer, maybe a young individual, maybe someone that is fresh off the streets and doesn't know anything about our God or Bible, that will encourage them to find God's will and do it, to get saved and to walk with God? Is there something that we can do that will enhance and encourage that? Is there something that we could do that would discourage it what makes an apostle Paul let's see what our Bible says in Acts chapter 9 in verse number 1 would you notice Acts 9 in verse 1 and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that he found any, that if he found any of this way that is the way of the cross the way of Christ the way of salvation that had been preached if he found any of this way whether they were men or women he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem and as he journeyed he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth he fell to the earth, and the scripture says, He heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? At that moment, Saul of Tarsus was saved. He called on the Lord, he submitted to him, he cried out to him, and he was saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hey, let me say to you, young person, look right up here. Young people, look right up at me right now. If you're not, if you're not saved here tonight, that's your number one and first first matter that needs to be settled. If you've never been born again, if you don't know when you put your head on your pillow that you're going to, to, going to heaven, if you, you don't know that if you died in the night that Jesus is your Savior and heaven is your home, that's your number one matter to settle. That's your number one focus. That's your number one question. What must I do to be saved? Nothing matters if you don't answer, answer that question biblically. And tonight, if you're not saved, you can be saved. In fact, I believe this, that it's so important to get saved that you could interrupt this service right now and interrupt my message and say, Preacher, I need to be saved. Some of you have not been saved and you know you've not been saved and you need to be saved and you need to be saved tonight. And it's that important that you could interrupt my message and nobody would think twice about it. We'd stop what we're doing and help you to Jesus. We'd get you to the Lord because we believe that salvation is the most important matter. But watch, right here is when Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul the Apostle, got saved. Verse number six, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Uh, I want you to see, now Saul of Tarsus gets saved. He looks up to heaven and he hears a voice and he hears the Lord say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
and, and he's trembling and he's astonished. He said, Lord, who art thou? And he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said, go into Damascus, go into the city. And I'll tell you what next. And so here Saul gets saved right at the moment of his salvation. Are you watching? Are you watching? Right at the moment of salvation, he is blinded. Can't see. They have to lead him around by the hand. The very thing that was his strength is now is gone. He can't depend on it anymore. And I personally believe this was his thorn in the flesh. Something wrong with his eyes. He couldn't see very well. He was hard to look on in presence. And, and he asked for big letters or he wrote in big letters when he wrote his epistles. Because God smote him with blindness. And that affected him the rest of his life in ministry. And the scripture here says that he's led by the hand and he's three days without eating and drinking. Three days he's fasting. Verse number 10, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Not the same Ananias of Acts chapter 5. He and his wife have been dispatched. God killed them in Acts chapter 5. This is a different Ananias, verse number 10. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold... I am here, Lord. Now watch me. I want to ask the question tonight, and I want us to answer the question, what makes an Apostle Paul? Because that answer is a very practical, has a very practical effect on everyone here. What makes an Apostle Paul? Well, number one, what made the Apostle Paul was the obedience of Ananias. Had there never been obedience on the part of Ananias, we would never have heard the apostle, of the Apostle Paul. Now remember, we're setting aside and assuming his salvation and assuming his, his call and assuming uh, Paul the Apostle's suffering. Those things undoubtedly made him. But we're talking about the human elements and the human influence and the human fingerprints in and upon his life. What makes an Apostle Paul? Number one, the obedience of Ananias. You say, how so? Well, look at the text. In the text, the Lord said to him, verse number 11, Arise, go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And it's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now I want you to notice several things about the obedience of Ananias. First of all, I want you to notice he was attentive. Did you see that? Watch me. Verse 10, the Lord said, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. I want to ask, are you attentive to hear the voice of God? You say, oh, preacher, are you one of those preachers that believe God speaks to us? It, it, I suppose you believe God speaks to us in an audible voice. No, I'm not talking about an audible voice. I'm talking about something much louder than an audible voice. I'm talking about how when God speaks to your spirit, I'm talking about when God the Holy Spirit leads you. I'm talking about what it says in Romans chapter 8, where it says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. I'm talking about those that cry, Abba, Father, and can speak to the Lord in prayer. And he speaks to us through his word. And he speaks to us through the leadership of his spirit. Now, there are some that only want to focus on the objective leading of the Lord that is through his word. And let me say, that is foundational and that is fundamental. We can't anyway, in any way undercut that. But God leads through the word of God and then he leads through his spirit. And let me say this, he will never lead through his spirit contrary to what he said in his word. That would, be, that would be counterproductive. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 4, we're to try the spirits to see whether they be of God. Sometimes it's a bad idea that I've concocted. Sometimes it's the demons of hell trying to influence and sway me away from the truth. Sometimes it's a bad idea that's out there. And that's why I need to try the spirits and see, is this the Lord speaking to me? And if he's speaking to you to give the gospel, if he's speaking to you to give uh, to a, a specific need, if he's speaking to you to help someone, if he's speaking to you to pray, well, all of that's in concert with his word. Now, if you think he's speaking to you to go into a bar and have a tequila, or he's speaking to you to go commit immorality, or you speak, th oh, then you know that's of the devil, and you know that's not of God. He never will lead in contrast or in contradiction to his word, but he will lead us in concert with his word. He will guide us in accordance with his word. Watch this. Acts chapter 9, Ananias, the Lord said, Ananias, 
Now, I know where we're at, and I know the Bible is not completed, and I know there's revelation still being given, but the Holy Spirit is giving us a pattern for how he leads. He says, behold, I am here, Lord. You know what? He was attentive. Are you ready? He was available. I know some people that are good hearers of the word, but they're not good doers. I know some people that are, are glad to hear the word of God, and they'll show up on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. Thank you for being here on Wednesday night, and God bless you for that. But James speaks to this specifically. He says, if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man that beholds his natural face in a glass. For behold, he goeth his way, and straightway for, beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now watch this. Do you know that men look into a mirror differently than a lady? Did you know that? Did you know that? That's a fact. Ladies have mirrors everywhere. They know where they're all at. We men don't. We take one look in the morning and say, you can't improve on perfection, and we go our way. (laughs) And we probably don't take a look into a mirror unless we have to the rest of the day. Now, I'm not talking about teenage young men, because teenage young men have an obsession. They look at the, oh yeah, every air and place, and every once in a while they flex, and they just, boy, they've got to make sure that they're they're looking good. But girls and ladies, they look in a mirror a, a lot more and a lot differently than men. You know that. Ladies carry mirrors in their purses. In fact, I would guess that there are ladies here right now who have more than one mirror, at least one mirror on their person right now. Men don't. In fact, we would think there's something wrong with a guy that doesn't. That that does, that does, right? Men, can I get an amen out of that? Come on now. Now, watch when he says, he says, a man looks in a glass and beholdeth himself. You know what word he's using there? The word for male. A person that hears the word of God and doesn't do it is like a male or a man that looks in a mirror. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You know, we ought to look at our Bibles and think about our Bibles and consider our Bibles and be attentive to it, available to obey the Bible as much as we look at our phones. That just ought to be. And watch, he says, I'm here, Lord. Verse 11, the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And it's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. (laughs) You know what he's doing? He's not arguing with God. He's appealing. I want you to notice his appeal. This is all part of his obedience. He says, Lord, Ananias says, uh, the Lord says, Ananias, he says, here I am, Lord. He's listening, he's available, he's attentive. And then he says, the Lord says, go to the street street straight and I want you to talk to one named Saul of Tarsus. The Saul of Tarsus? I've heard a lot about this guy. He's persecuted all of those that follow you. In fact, word had it, that he was on his way here to Damascus to persecute those that follow you in this city. We talking about the same guy? Now watch. He wasn't doing this out of disrespect. Hear me now. Hear me. He wasn't doing it out of rebellion. He was doing it for clarification. And the Lord doesn't mind that. I try to teach my boys as they become men, you can disagree with me, but you cannot defy me. You can reason with me, but you cannot rebel. Do you see the difference? You can appeal, but you cannot be argumentative. And I think that's right, especially with young men, but with young ladies as well. As their brains begin to turn to an adult brain and they begin to reason out, we need to not just say, this is what we're supposed to do, but here's why. And here's a Bible reason why. Here's a common sense reason why. A parent that won't do that, there's a problem. And our Lord is not an imperfect parent. He's the perfect parent. And so Ananias says, Are we talking about the same Saul that was headed here to persecute Christians? The Lord said, yes. Look what the Bible says right here in Acts chapter 9. Notice verse number number 14. 
He said, Here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Watch this. Verse 17, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been, scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. I want you to notice, watch this, not only was Ananias attentive, not only was he uh, available, not only was he appealing, but he was a man of action and he obeyed the Lord. The Lord said, yes, this is the same one, go. And I said, yes, sir. And he went. He didn't hesitate. He didn't wait. He went. No matter the risk, no matter the, the, no matter the possibilities, no matter the fact that this could have possibly been a trap, it wasn't. The Lord wouldn't lead him into a trap, but it was just going to obey God. And I'll tell you, when you obey God, listen to me, when you step out by faith, hear it, when you begin to love people, there's a risk. But the benefits far outweigh the negative possibilities. Do you notice when he went, he came to where Saul was and he knocked on the door. Now you think what you'd be like if you were Saul of Tarsus. Headed to Damascus to separate families. To imprison Christians. You were there. He was there when Stephen was persecuted and killed. He was there. People knew in Acts chapter 8 it says Saul made havoc of the church. And he separated men and women and hailed them to prison. And now your sight is gone. You've just met the Lord. You've been three days without food and drink. And there's a knock. That's possibly what he could have been thinking. And here comes Ananias in the door. And the first words from a Christian that Saul of Tarsus hears after he becomes a Christian are these. Brother Saul. Ananias, because he obeyed God, was the first one to call Saul brother. Good. And then the scripture says, he laid his hands on him and Saul's scales fell from his eyes and Ananias was the first Christian that he saw after he got saved. Wow. You know that that picture and that image and that moment was emblazoned forever upon the heart of Saul of Tarsus who later became Paul. Wow. So number one, had there not been the obedience of Ananias, we would never have heard of him. Look what happened as a result of Ananias' obedience. Verse number 19, and when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus and straightway. That means right away. That means immediately, straightway. He preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Wait, wait a second. Has he even, has he even gone through the membership class yet? What about this? Has he been to Bible college yet? Now, don't misunderstand. I'm for a good, sound Bible training and Bible education. Don't misunderstand. Wait, has he been to seminary yet? And what's he doing standing there and preaching? He's preaching Jesus. He's preaching the Christ that met him on the road to Damascus. He's preaching the one that, whose followers he once persecuted just days before. He's preaching Jesus Christ and he's confounding them. Verse number 21. But all that heard him were amazed. And said, is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus proving that this is very Christ and after that many days were fulfilled the Jews could counsel to kill him that means Saul when he started out preaching started off on the right foot a preacher that's never had a threat on his life and the preacher that's never been in a dangerous place and a preacher that's never preached against sin so much so that sinners get angry he's probably not doing everything that he ought to be doing and Saul starts off on the right foot and these these men 
take a plot and they're going to kill him. Verse 24, but their laying await was known of Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night, led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. So he, he says, he's looking by day and by night, checking, the, looking out the peephole in the door. He's, he's checking his cell phone. Don't answer that call. That's, don't answer that call. That's probably one of these guys trying to kill him. And, and, and he's sending word out and people are coming back. And at nighttime, the disciples put him in a basket, probably a big basket. And they put him down over the wall and he took off into the darkness, snuck out of town in the, under the dark of night. He gets down to Jerusalem and he went to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem and knocked on the door and they said, who is it? He said, Saul of Tarsus. They said, nobody's home. <laughs> he, he's, oh, man. So he went to the Second Baptist Church, knocked on the door. Who is it? He said, uh, Saul of Tarsus. He said, nobody's home. Went to the third Baptist church. You said there's no such thing. Oh, yes, there is. I grew up going to the fourth Baptist church, so there has to be a third. And so they knocked on the door. He said, they said, who is it? He said, Saul. Saul of who? Tarsus. Nobody's home. What's he going to do now? He's hunted by the Jews up in Damascus to kill him. And they're probably getting word down here to Jerusalem pretty quick. He's probably got to have a hoodie on so nobody can exactly see uh, his face. How, how, how's this going to work? The Christians won't even accept him down here. And rightly so. You probably wouldn't accept Saul of Tarsus either if he'd just thrown your grandmother a few years or a few months earlier into jail. If he'd thrown your daddy into jail. If he'd killed one of your preachers. Verse number 27. But Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles. Barnabas saw Saul frustrated, discouraged, sitting on the front step of some church. He said, are you Saul of Tarsus? He said, yes, I am. Barnabas started backing away. He said, no, no, no. He said, you know what happened to me? He said, I've been saved. Barnabas said, I've heard about it. He said, word's gotten down from Damascus that you've been saved and that you were preaching in the synagogues. I've heard about you. He, he said, is it true? Yes, I got saved. The Lord met me on my way to Damascus. I was, had papers in my hand to kill Christians. He said, and you preached Christ? Yeah, so much so they were going to kill me. I had to sneak down on a, in a basket at the dark of night. Yeah, 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 I heard all that too. Barnabas checks him out. He says... Come with me. So Barnabas takes him down through a back alley and through a dark corner and around underneath a building and comes down into a basement and comes down through first door and he comes to some people that were kind of standing guard, the security detail of the church. And he says, uh, he says, it's okay, he's with me. And he gets through that first security detail and he comes in and he types in the password and he gets through the third door and he gets into the inner circle and he gets him there into the inner circle and they say, hey, Barnabas, good to see you. Glad you're here. How you doing? He said, I brought a friend. A friend? Well, who is it? Well, it's a brand new convert. Oh, a brand new convert. Praise God. Did he get saved at Pentecost? No. Well, did he get saved when, when, when there were 5,000 saved a couple of verses later? No. Well, did he get saved after uh, the Lord killed Ananias and Sapphira and great fear fell on the church? No. Well, who is he? Saul of Tarsus. Barnabas! What are you thinking? Saul of Tarsus. You brought him down into the sea. Did he see the passport? How in the world? He's going to kill us all. No, 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 no. He's not going to kill us all. Guess what? He's one of us now. What? Yeah. Remember those rumors we heard from Damascus? Yeah. Remember how they said Saul of Tarsus got saved? Yeah. Remember how they said he was preaching? We said, oh, no, that's a trap. They're trying to draw us out. No, no, no. Here he is. Isn't it true, Saul? It's true. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he's come in the flesh. And their fear and panic instantly went to, whoa, glory. Now, I've heard your preacher does some cartwheels, and I've seen him. I bet everybody was doing cartwheels that moment. God saved Saul of Tarsus? Yeah. And are you listening to me? We would never have heard of him had it not been for, number two, the encouragement 
of Barnabas. Now I want you to hear me with your ears wide open and the volume turned way up. Somebody in this body needs your encouragement. Some young believer that has never been discipled in this town needs your encouragement. How many times have you heard a testimony that went something like this? I got saved when I was young at a concert or at a service or on TV. I was watching a preacher or I I got saved listening to somebody on the radio and I didn't go to a Bible preaching church and for years I floundered and I never really had anybody to disciple me. How many of you have ever heard a a testimony like that? Look at, look, hold your hands up, look around. Some of you holding your hands up might have that kind of testimony. Somebody around here needs you to encourage them. Yes, you question. Yes, you ask. Yes, you examine their salvation. But after they've verified that they've trusted Christ, you do what Barnabas did. You take them. He didn't look at him with squinty-eyed suspicion. He didn't say, well, we'll see if it really washes out. I'll watch you for the next six months. No, no, he took him. Do you know why? Because true charity believeth all things. And Barnabas was showing true charity. And had it not been for the encouragement of Barnabas, we'd have never, ever, ever heard of the Apostle Paul. There was a little 12-year-old boy that was standing outside a, a great auditorium. And the auditorium was packed. People had come from around the suburbs and around the area to hear the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And it was so packed that the police had made a decision, it's enough. No more people are allowed in because it's a fire hazard. And of course, in places like England, Spurgeon's Tabernacle, there had been a false cry and false alarm of fire and there had been a stampede and people died. And so they didn't want that. They didn't want anybody to be in danger. So they closed the doors. Nobody was allowed in. There was a 12-year-old boy standing outside crying. And a man came up to him and said, what's wrong, son? He said, I I came from a distance to hear the evangelist, the preacher named D.L. Moody, and now they shut the doors and they won't let anybody else in. That's why I came. He said, son, he said, come with me. And he took him out around the back of the big gathering and he took him in a back door. He took him up some steps. He took him onto the platform and he said, you sit right here. And that man sat on the platform, and when his turn came, he stepped up, and he said, now I brought a guest today, and his name is Paul. Isn't that your name? And he said, Paul, he said, Paul has come to hear the word of God preached. Do you know who that man was? D.L. Moody. And because he took a risk and took Paul in, Paul Rader got saved that day. And Paul Rader became the preacher of the great Chicago Tabernacle, the Chicago Gospel Tabernacle, and was instrumental in founding Awana. Why? Because somebody took him. Took him. I have friends whose dad was reached because of Paul Rader. You see, when you invest for Christ, it never is seed sown in vain. Never. Never. Not under any circumstance. It is never sown in vain. The Bible says Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, verse 27, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus and he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem and he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Wow. Wow. Watch me now. Look here. Look here. We'd have never, ever heard of the apostle Paul if it hadn't been for the obedience of Ananias, if it hadn't been for the encouragement of Barnabas. Watch me, look right up at me for just a second. I want to speak to every adult. There may be some other person's kid, teenager, in this place who's struggling. You need to be aware of that. Not so you can point your finger and condemn them, But every once in a while, I'll come up next to them. And if you can, and in an appropriate way, put your arm around them. Say, I just want you to know, I love you and I'm praying for you. Maybe even slip them a five or a ten just to tell them, hey, go get a Coke on me. And I want you to know that I love you and I'm praying for you. And then pray for them. You listening to me? 
That kind of thing will help that kid go a long way. Instead of pointing our finger and condemning some young person that's struggling through their young person years, we ought to be saying, how can I be an encouragement to the next generation and invest in their life? Wow. Praise God for Ananias. And praise God for Barnabas. You said, wait a second, preacher. You said there were three. There are. Turn back to Acts chapter 7 and we're through. Quickly, Acts chapter 7, we must hasten. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching. The question was asked amongst the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees uh, what Jesus meant when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They took issue with it because they so loved their temple that they didn't even see that he was the God of the temple. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen defends what Jesus said and explains what Jesus said and expounds on what Jesus said. In Acts chapter 7, he preaches, and the scripture says, he called them out, verse number 51, he said, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it? When they heard that, these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. And he was filled with the Holy Ghost and he looked up steadfastly towards heaven. And the Bible says he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That means he died. So if it had not been for Saul seeing Stephen die the way he did, I don't know that Paul would have, Saul would have ever gotten saved. How did, Saul, how did Saul see Stephen die the way he did? Well, Stephen died the way he did in total forgiveness. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. In total forgiveness. He died the way he did, totally releasing him of the debt that they were incurring by killing him. How did Stephen die the way he did? I'll tell you how he died the way he did. Because he died a long time before Acts chapter 7. He died to himself and died to his own ambitions and died to his dreams and died to his will to live and died to everything that he had, including life itself. And he said, I'll give my life gladly for Jesus. And Saul of Tarsus saw it. And I believe that made such an impression upon him. He never forgot. This is the way a Christian dies. Just like their Savior. Amazing. Do you know that had it not been for Stephen's death and Ananias' obedience and Barnabas' encouragement, we may never ever have heard of the Apostle Paul. Hmm. I want you to understand that there's a great task laid upon us to die to self, to encourage others, and to obey our Lord. I told you about Zvia Flood dying and her husband David Flood going back to Sweden and giving up. Well, within eight months, both of the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady. Some say they were poisoned and they died within days of each other. The baby that was born to David and Zvia Flood was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. This family loved the little girl and was afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and switch from mission work to the pastoral work. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended a Bible college in the Midwest and there she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hearst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter, then a son. In time, her husband became a president of a Christian college in the Northwest, and Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. 
One day, a Swedish religious magazine fell on her desk. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course she couldn't read the words, but she, she, as she turned the pages, all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. There in a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Zvia Flood. Aggie jumped in her car, went straight to a college faculty member who could translate this for her, and she said, what does this say, she demanded. The instructor summarized the story. It was about missionaries who had come to Ndolera, Africa, long ago. The birth of a white baby, the death of the young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how he, after all the whites had gone, the boy grew up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article went on to read how that, how that, that eventually all his students were won to Christ, and the children led their parents to Christ. And even the chief had become a Christian. And today in that village alone, there were 600 Christian believers. All because of the sacrifice of David and Zvia Flood. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with the gift of a vacation to Sweden. Their Aggie sought to find her real father. He was an old man now. David Flood had walked away from God, remarried, fathered four more children and generally dissipated his life. With alcohol, he had recently suffered a stroke, still bitter. He had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God, because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others were, were hesitant. They said, you can talk to him, but if, if, you, if you mention the name of God, he'll fly into a rage. But Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment. With liquor bottles everywhere, she approached this 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. She said, she said, Papa? He turned and began to cry. Aina, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied. She took him in her arms. God took care of me. Instantly, he stiffened. He said, God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. But Aggie continued. He said, Papa, she said, I've got a story to tell you. You remember that one little boy that brought you eggs and chickens? Mama led him to Jesus. And because Mama led him to Jesus, there are 600 Christians in that town today. All because of the sacrifice of David and Zvia flood. And by the time Zvia, by the time Aggie was done, her dad had come back to the Lord. What am I saying? I'm saying any investment you make for eternity and for Christ and for others will pay dividends for years to come. And you never know. One of those you're investing in may someday turn out like the Apostle Paul. Would you bow with me in prayer? Dreamed I went to heaven You were there with me We walked upon the streets of gold Beside the crystal sea Heard these angels singing someone called your name turned and saw this young man and he was smiling as he came and he said friend you may not know me now and then he said but wait you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight and every week you'd say a prayer before the class would start. One week when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am alive. That was changed Thank you 
so glad you gave And another man came before you Said remember the time A missionary came to your church And his pictures made you cry Didn't have much money But you gave it anyway Jesus took that gift you gave And that's why I'm here today Thank you for giving to the Lord I am a life that was changed Thank you for giving to the Lord I am so glad you gave By one they came Far as the eye could see Each one was somehow touched By your generosity Little things that you had done Sacrifices made They were unnoticed on this earth in heaven now proclaimed and i know that up in heaven you're not supposed to cry but i am almost sure there were tears in your eyes as jesus took your hand and you stood before the lord he said, my child, look around you, for great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank truth that Jesus gave when he was preaching the most famous sermon ever preached. And that truth was that the lilies don't toil or spin. 
And yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. And the sparrows, they don't plant or sow. And yet God takes care of the sparrows. And if God will take care of the sparrows and the lilies, he'll take care of you. Consider. 